0: If you can keep your Bible to Luke 24, that's just read. And in your bulletin, you would have a sermon handout. You can take that out. It will give you a stare as to whoever are heading this morning. Yvonne is a security guard working at a factory in Russia during the Soviet Union era, and at the end of a long work day, an employee was leaving his factory pushing a wheelbarrow through the gate to head home. Inside the wheelbarrow was a crate, and Yvonne, being the good security guard that he was, he stopped the man and said, what have you got in your wheelbarrow? I've got a crate, he said. I know you've got a crate, but what's in the crate? The worker replied, the sawdust from the floor. You see, at the end of the day, it gets swept up and strewn thrown away. I needed some, and so I put it in the crate, and I'm taking it home. The guard looked inside the crate, and sure enough, it was filled with sawdust. He poured the sawdust out onto the wheelbarrow, carefully checked it, found nothing. So he sent the worker on his way. The next day, the same thing happened. And then the third day, again, it happened. And the fourth day too. And on the fifth day, the worker again came through with a wheelbarrow and a crate of sawdust. And this time, Yvonne said, it's you again, with your wheelbarrow and your sawdust. Now I know you're up to something, look, in fact, I think you're stealing something. Why don't you tell me what you're stealing, and I promise you I won't report you?" And the worker said, Well, okay, as long as you promise me, I'll tell you. I'm stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> That's quite a common occurrence in our lives, isn't it? Like Ivan, we often miss the things that are hidden in plain sight. But losing a few wheelbarrows, was sad, is not tragic. What is tragic is when the gospel is so simple and plain, and yet we fail to see God clearly for who He is. And we fail to see what He has done for us through Jesus Christ because we've been so distracted by all the other things around us. Our passage this morning records the second or three post resurrection stories found in the Gospel of Luke. Last week, Keith preached on the first of these stories, starting from Luke 24, verse 1. I'll just do a quick recap. The woman had gone to Jesus' tomb to embalm his body, but what did they find? An empty tomb. Jesus was not there, and they were perplexed. It is one more thing in a whole series of events in the last few days that seemed meaningless to them. And then the angels appeared, and they reminded the woman about what Jesus had previously told them that he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise and the women remembered and they rushed back to the 11 and other disciples and told them all that happened but they were not believed you can imagine the mood then and on one hand you have the woman insisting that what they said was true and on the other you can imagine some disciples perhaps telling them they're hallucinating other disciples perhaps not so sure some probably believed at least enough to want to run to the tomb to see for themselves And so on that Sunday morning, the feeling within that group of disciples must have run the gamut from being perplexed, frightened, disbelief, and scepticism. And on top of that, they had to deal with the fact that they were still grieving with the loss of Jesus. In short, a lot of confusion and emotional turmoil. And it's against this background that our passage starts in verse 13. On that Sunday, two of those from this group started on their journey home to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. We don't know exactly where this village is, but it is generally thought to be somewhere northwest of Jerusalem. And of the two disciples, we, we know one of them was named Clopas. We see that in verse 18. But as to who the other person was, commentators don't all agree. I tend to agree with those who think that it's likely to be the wife of Clopas. Uh, The reason being that they seem to share a home together. You see that in verse 29 when they invited Jesus to stay with them. There's also speculation that Clopas might uh, might, this might well be Mary, the wife of Clopas uh, mentioned in John chapter 19 verse 25. You don't have to turn there but I'll read for you. It says, standing by the cross of Jesus will his mother and his mother's sister marry the wife of Clopas. But in any case, it must have been Afternoon, by the time they set off from Jerusalem, we're not sure exactly why they'd be going home after hearing what the woman had to say about their encounter with the angels. We would have thought that they would would want to stay on in Jerusalem with the rest. Perhaps they were one of those who found it hard to believe what the woman had said. And hearing the story of resurrection did not bring about faith from the two of them, just more confusion. And so they headed back home. But we know that the whole incident was still very much in their minds. The crucifixion, the empty tomb, the woman's report, Jesus' words before he was arrested. They were deep in conversation as they walked on the road to Emmaus. It was during this time that Jesus came and walked alongside them. And this wouldn't be unusual because the Passover was a major festival. And Jerusalem would have swelled to about three times its normal population due to pilgrims coming from all over to visit Jerusalem. And now with the Sabbath over, many of these pilgrims would be making their way back home, just like this couple. But the two didn't recognize Jesus. We are told their eyes were kept from recognizing Him, most likely divinely kept from recognizing Him. Then Jesus asked, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And then they stopped, looked at Jesus in astonishment, and Cleopas said, Are you the only one in town who hasn't heard about the data scandal with Facebook? Well, okay, maybe he didn't quite say that. But pretty close. Basically he was saying, Where have you been? Have you been sticking your head in the sand? Everybody knows what happened this past few days. Look at verse 19. And he said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to, cru- to be condemned to death and crucified. But we have hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women... Of our company amazed us. They were at a tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who say that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. But him they did not see. Let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves what's happening here? Basically you have someone who is having a lot of difficulties reconciling what had happened with what he thought should be happening. And Philippus is not alone in this. Together with many Jews of his time, he was living in a story that goes something like this. The Jews are a chosen race. They are God's covenant people. God has made promises to them. And whenever they get into trouble, they, they cry to God, and God would send someone to rescue them. Think of the most important event in their history. In fact, Passover—they just celebrated that. That was what's that all about? That's God redeeming them from 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians. He sent Moses to rescue them. There were ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea to escape from Pharaoh and his army, and then God sends Joshua. To help them conquer Canaan, the promised land. And later, even when they were attacked by the Assyrians and then exiled to Babylon, he brought them back to Israel. So now, with the Romans, the Jews are expecting a Messiah, God's chosen king, to come and rescue them and to free them from their Roman oppressors. God's done it before, he'll do it again. He said so through his prophets in the scripture. And so they've their hope on the fact that Jesus would be that Messiah. They had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel from the Romans. But now that's all wishful thinking. Because Jesus has been crucified. And when was the last time you saw a dead man leading a political or military revolution? Their hope of Jesus redeeming them was sneered to a cross on that Friday. And there was no more hope. And to add to this hopeless situation, they are now confused as they try to make sense of the woman's reports that Jesus' body was not in the tomb and the angels had appeared to say that he was really alive. Now think for a while, isn't that ironic? All this time Cleopas and his wife talking to Jesus about Jesus? I mean this is truly a case of but him they did not see. And that's why they remain sad, downcast, and without hope. And you know what's a bigger irony to that? These people have just witnessed the most important and most wonderful event in history, and they're depressed. And that's because they're looking at the sawdust and missing the wheelbarrow. They were living in the wrong story. And so Jesus rebukes them. Look at verse 25. He calls them foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. Jesus told them it was necessary that Christ have to suffer and then enter into his glory. And this is not the first time he's saying this. Look it up later on if you have time. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Look at Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 33. He has said exactly the same thing to his disciples before. And for people who spend so much time with Jesus, They don't listen or understand very well, do they? You see, their problem is not with their physical sight, there's nothing wrong with their eyes. Their problem is with the lenses that they are using to interpret Scripture. They were using their ethnic and nationalistic lens. They were expecting a redeeming Messiah, a conquering Messiah like King David, who will free them from the Romans. The idea of a suffering Messiah was foreign to them. Yes, the prophet Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. But you see, they never linked that with the promised Messiah. And as they read their Old Testament, they saw the glory, but not the suffering. They saw the crown, but not the cross. And in a sense, aren't we all like that? We all want to be redeemed, we want to be freed, so that we can have a nicer house, a happy marriage, well-paid job, and so on. We are like Cleopas. We're looking for Messiah to free us so that we can have an easier life. But Jesus comes to do much more than that. And so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is basically the shorthand way of saying all of Scripture, which at this point in time is just the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them how all of the Old Testament pointed to Him how all the people, the patterns, and the prophecies of the Old Testament pointed God's people to the King who would come to die and rise again for His people. And these all found their fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now You might ask, how can this be the case? How, how would the Old Testament point God's people to the King who would come to die and rise again for His people? Now, listen to how John Calvin explains it, and I quote, Christ is Isaac, the beloved son of the Father, who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. He is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed To acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He's the great sacrificer and bishop, Melchizedek, who has offered an an eternal sacrifice once for all. It's a sovereign lawgiver, Moses, writing his law on the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. It's a faithful captain and guide, Joshua, to guide us into the promised land. It's a victorious and noble king, David. Bring by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. He is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all his enemies. This is what we should in short seek in the whole Scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in Him and are offered to us by Him from God the Father. If one were to say thoroughly the Law and the Prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to Him." End quote. You see how Scripture is full of Jesus even in the Old Testament? You see how important it is for us to read and understand Scripture through the lens of Jesus? And when we do that, we begin to understand the story we have each been called to live in. So knowing and trusting in the scripture is important. And I think that's why in Luke's post-resurrection stories, all we have until now is only a claim of Jesus' resurrection. The angel's claim uh, to the woman at the tomb. No one at this point has actually seen Jesus yet. I think God divinely kept these two disciples from recognizing Jesus. This way, they will base the understanding of the cross and the resurrection squarely on the scripture, not on experience. I think that's also why Luke has the angels appearing to the woman at the tomb instead of Jesus just showing up to convince them that his reason. Because this way, as Luke writes, they will remember his words. You see, before long, Jesus would have ascended into heaven, and there will be no more sightings of Him. And 2000 years later, in a city called Toronto, on a street called Verdine Avenue, in a tea shop called Princeton Teas, people will be expected to believe that Jesus has been resurrected, not because we have seen His pierced hands and side, but through our faith in what has been recorded for us in the Bible. Remember John 20 verse 29? what Jesus said to Doubting Thomas? Have you believed because you have seen Me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we will be blessed because we believe the Word of God. Verse 28 As He drew near to Emmaus, Jesus acted as if He was going further. why in case you don't understand what's happening here in Middle Eastern culture and even in Asian culture today. It would be the polite thing for Jesus to act as if he would go on and let them invite him to stay with them. This way, it's not been presumptuous to assume that he would be invited to stay, and it would be a way for him to test a person's hospitality. <coughs> and then at their home in Emmaus, and when they were at the table, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. We are not told why they recognized Jesus then. It could be the way in which Jesus broke the bread that reminded them of the feeding of the 5,000 when He did exactly the same thing, or possibly because, as some said, that was when they saw the pierced hands as He was lifting up the bread, or possibly it was just that moment when God decided to open their eyes, and whatever the case, What is Luke doing here? What is Luke, the author here, doing? I think Luke is continuing to paint for his readers the story that we live in. Where in the Bible have you read about a man and a woman who had their eyes open? Luke is going back all the way to Genesis. Adam and Eve. As the commentator puts it, Adam and Eve, created and placed in the Garden of Eden, began the task set before them of being God's image bearers in His newly created world to bring God's love and care and wise ordering to bear upon the whole creation. The woman took the forbidden fruit, gave it to the men, and they both ate it, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they began in sorrow and shame to argue about responsibility and to go out into a puzzling world of thorns and thistles in exile, away from the Garden of Eden. Now, Luke wants to tell us that this story has now been reversed. For this man and woman on the road to Emmaus, the thorns and thistles of their world have been puzzling enough. And they stand in sorrow and shame over the events of the last few days. And then Jesus comes along and interprets the scripture for them, giving them a different ending to the story that they had expected. And then He comes into their house, He takes the bread and blesses and breaks it and gives it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. You see, Easter is the beginning of the new creation. God's new world order has arrived. The exile is over. The man and woman on Emmaus Road are now one of the first people to be God's image bearers again, to take His kingdom to the whole of creation. It's the story of the lion Aslan. If you have read or you have watched the movie, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, it's about Aslan, the Christ figure in that story, telling Lucy and Susan how the curse on Narnia has been reversed. He said, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. The curse has been reversed. I think that's what Luke is trying to portray for us here. Verse 32, and they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while while He talked to us on the road? What he opened to us, the scriptures. That's what happens when we get it. When we can see clearly the story that God is weaving in our world. Our hearts burn within us. We're filled with excitement and joy. And that's why it's called the gospel, because it's good news. Verse 33 And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It didn't matter that it was dark, and traveling at night in those days was dangerous. It didn't matter that it was another seven miles back to Jerusalem, the two of them had to tell the disciples. And to their joy this time round, they didn't have to try to convince the rest, because Jesus had appeared to Simon Peter as well. Let me close. Let me draw three thoughts from our passage this morning, especially what it means to see through new lenses. The first is this. What sort of story are we living in today? What sort of story are you living in today? Our world is desperately looking for joy and peace now and hope for the future, but in all the wrong places. We are equivalent to the modern day, modern day equivalent of us living in the wrong story. No wonder we are sad and downcast and feeling hopeless. We need to recognize that in God's story, life has meaning, it has hope. The resurrection of Jesus makes sense of the story of the whole Bible, it makes sense of our lives. Because it explains the past, it helps us live in the future, the present, and gives us hope for the future. It turns even the most terrible event in history, the crucifixion of Jesus, into good news. Good news that caused our hearts to burn within us. In fact, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection is that important. So if we believe Jesus is alive, if we live in God's story, everything changes. And we need to ask ourselves, are we part of this story? And if so, are our lives reflecting the story we live in? Are we living resurrection lives? Lives that reflect the hope that it's only possible because Jesus has conquered death and is risen today. The second point I want to make is the importance of Scripture. Jesus didn't want to short-circuit the process of getting the disciples to recognize Him. He took them through the Scriptures, explaining to them. And that's the importance He places on Scripture. We don't now usually get sightings of Jesus, and so the Bible is what's going to help us see and recognize Jesus. The Bible helps us make sense of the world around us. Are we reading it? Are we studying it? Are we applying it in our lives? Do we have a plan to help us read through the whole Bible? If not, come and see me. I'll be glad to help you with a Bible reading plan. Finally, and thirdly, Luke makes it pretty obvious in this passage that the moment people find out about the resurrection... They tell others. They don't sit on it. Think of the two disciples in verse 33 hurrying in the darkness to Jerusalem to tell the rest. Think of the woman last week in verse 9 going back to tell skeptical disciples. There are many people today on the road to Emmaus, perplexed about life, frightened of the future filled with disbelief about everything and without hope. When I think of this story of Jesus walking alongside the two disciples, explaining the scripture, I think of the story of Philip the Evangelist walking alongside the chariots of the Ethiopian eunuch in in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, and having the opportunity to explain scripture to him. We are all men to be like Jesus. We are all men to be like Philip. We need to walk alongside our family, our friends, our colleagues, and our schoolmates who do not yet believe. We need to walk alongside them to read scripture with them. We need them to see through new lenses. We need to help them see Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.